As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Just a brief disclaimer that this particular episode of The Athletic Football Podcast contains discussions about sexual abuse, coercive control and other distressing topics. Hello, I'm Dan Bardell. And I'm Flo Lloyd-Hughes. And welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast, where every Wednesday, Flo and myself pick up one article from all the writing available on The Athletic and put the authors under the spotlight. Yeah, and this week it felt like there was only one piece really to talk about, because last week Meg Linehan, who is women's soccer writer for The Athletic in the US, broke a story that brought US professional women's football to a complete standstill. Her incredible investigative piece with colleague Katie Strang detailed the experiences of Sinead Farrelly and Manishim and accusations of sexual coercion by the now former North Carolina Courage coach Paul Riley. Yeah, it's an incredibly powerful, moving and impactful article. And before we do introduce Meg Flo, I just wanted to ask you for your own reaction to, to this troubling story. Yeah, it was extremely shocking. Um, and I should add that Riley denies the allegations against him and says they are completely untrue. Meg will, you know, I'm sure will be able to sort of give the context really well on this. But I think for so many people and why I think it was really important that we bring it to this podcast is so many people probably won't realise the size of this story and its impact unless you know women's football because it, it mm. is the equivalent of you know, one of the biggest managers in in the men's game, you know, it's that kind of status, it's that kind of level we're dealing with in terms of success, in terms of who he is and the name. Um, and I think that's why it was particularly shocking is we've, you know, there's been a lot of difficulties in that league over the past year. And it felt like this was, you know, in some ways like the tip of the iceberg. Um, and with everything else as well that's going on in the UK right now, it was just the culmination of so much fear, emotion, frustration, anger um, that so many women, so many people are experiencing at the moment that it was just, yeah, um, a really, really uh, incredible piece, but a tough read at that. Yeah, I mean, the, the bravery of Sinead Farrelly and Manashim to, to come out and talk through their journey and hopefully prevent something like this ever happening again. Yeah, and I think, unfortunately... Um, it's something that obviously isn't exclusive to women's sport um, and it's something we've seen 
across sport, across culture in general, across all workplaces. You know, I'm sure anyone that's listening to this knows someone or has experienced similar issues or 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 things at their workplace because unfortunately it is a part of society and, and you can't escape it. And I think um, it's just really uh, upsetting to to feel like you can't just do your job you can't just live your life uh freely as and 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 as who you want to be without without having to experience that sort of thing so I think I think it's going to be a relatable listen and a relatable read unfortunately so for so many people because it is it is part of our society as as things stand yeah, the piece isn't really just about careers being ruined. It's about lives being ruined. And let's bring in Meg Linehan now, who, who who wrote the piece titled, This Guy Has a Pattern Amid Institutional Failure, Former NWSL Players Accused Prominent Coach of Sexual Coercion. Meg, welcome to the podcast. I found your piece really, really troubling and obviously heartbreaking and credit to you for putting it together with Kate because it's obviously incredibly sensitive, incredibly personal to the players you interviewed as well. And how did you come to find it and write this story and and how were you feeling just before it was about to go live? Because it's a huge, huge, massive deal. No, I mean, this was months in the works. The the players approached me when they realised that you know, the league was not going to open an investigation and just were so persistent in actually making sure that someone listened to them. And uh, Manashim is a, a player that I've covered since 2013. And so I think when my name came up in terms of potential reporters that they could speak to, that was one that, that Mana knew. So I think that really was the connection that might have made the difference. But yes, the the Wednesday before this story went live, obviously we're trying to, that day is a very important day because we're trying to collect the actual statements that are going to go in the piece, right? And we're trying to reach out to Paul Riley to ensure that he has the potential to deny the allegations that the players are making. When Paul Riley was contacted uh, about the allegations, he wrote, I have never had sex with or made sexual advances towards these players. He said he sometimes socialised with players and occasionally picked up bar tabs, but in his own words, I do not take them out drinking. He conceded that over the course of his career, in quotation marks, there's a chance I've said something along the way that offended someone. But he added, I do not belittle my players, comment on their weight or discuss their personal relationships. He also denied holding film sessions in his hotel room. So all of this is happening at the same time. But I woke up on Wednesday and I was I was definitely a very stressed person knowing, you know, we have about 24 hours until the story goes live. Obviously, a lot of pieces have to come together still, but also knowing that Thursday is going to be a day like we have not really seen in this sport. The North Carolina Courage fired its head coach, Paul Riley, after a bombshell article in The Athletic. A former player, Sinead Farley, accuses Coach Riley of coercing her into having sex on multiple occasions. Riley says the allegations against him are completely untrue. The commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League has stepped down following allegations of misconduct against a now former coach in a tweet late Friday night. The NWSL says that it received and accepted Lisa Baird's resignation. She served as commissioner for less than two years. Judy, the games were postponed after the players demanded an end to what they call systematic abuse in the league. On Thursday, North Carolina's professional team, The Courage, 
fired coach Paul Riley following reports he sexually coerced multiple players. Riley coerced one player to have sex with him, forced two players to kiss one another, and sent unsolicited sexual pictures. Yeah, it certainly, I mean, I think really brought the the sport especially in the states to a complete standstill um and and definitely the women's football world in, in the uk really had a big reaction as well but for a lot of our listeners who aren't sort of tapped into the women's football world can you give a little context about who paul riley is and his status within the sport Sure. So Paul Riley has been in the professional women's game in some form since 2010, basically coached in WPS, which was the league before the National Women's Soccer League, and then moved over to the Thorns 2014, 2015. And then really probably most people know Paul Riley now because the team that he went to in 2016, Western New York, won the championship that year. And then when they moved to North Carolina and became the North Carolina Courage, they have been the most dominant team in the United States, in the NWSL. I think you need a lot of you know, character, personality, resilience, perseverance, which we talk about a lot, I think, in the group. Um, you know, when we, when we started the team four years ago, Western New York, I think it was more of a culture change. And what, 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 when you have a culture change, what do you need to do to change that culture? And I think a lot of it revolves around the players, the collaboration of the players, uh, and the challenge of the players to get better. Also won a uh, Women's International Champions Cup over Lyon one year. So they, they really do, I think, have this big reputation of winning, winning the regular season, winning the championship, just... There was one season where I think they lost exactly one game, right? So truly one of the strongest teams in this league. He's won multiple awards. He earned the highest license from U.S. soccer, the pro license. Vlako Andonovsky, who's the current head coach of the national team, was in his class. And also he has kind of this extensive network of youth academy and, and a youth school that just actually he sold um, within the past couple of years. So he, he really has an immense amount of power, both at the professional level, but just kind of within the sport of women's soccer across multiple levels. And in your piece, you spoke to 12 players who've played under him and, and 10 more across the NOSL. What were some of the claims that the players made about him to you? So really what the vast majority of players that I spoke to spoke about the environment that happened at Paul Riley's teams, they spoke about the lowering of boundaries. They spoke about how they would go out drinking, that he would pick up the tab, right? I mean, they describe him handing over $100 bills to to go buy shots at the bar. But also there is this kind of constant push and pull, right? Paul Riley, so many players talked about how Paul Riley would tell them, you can be a great player, but I'm the one that's going to make you great. So he he would kind of constantly have this push and pull of favoritism, attention, right? And then take it away so that way players were unbalanced. And a lot of players spoke about that sort of emotion. But then there's also layering in some verbal abuse that they described. There's one incident that so many players spoke about where they're, they just lost a game for Portland Thorns, and he berated a player in the locker room for bringing her child to the game, that that was the reason they lost the match, because she had brought her kid to watch the game. So a lot a lot is going on. And, and also one kind of element of this that I think is not necessarily getting uh, as much attention as a lot of the other stuff, but 
there is this fascination that so many players described with their sexual orientation, right? That's a big part of the story, especially for both Sinead Farrelly and Mana Shim, where he becomes kind of fixated on who they're in relationships with and if they're really gay. And all of this sort of stuff, you know, you're too pretty, right? Like comments like that are kind of constant. And he's pulling other players aside. Other players talked about how he would say, hey, you have to watch out for Sinead. She's in this relationship with a teammate. And I think it's bad for her. So there's that element as well. There's just a lot happening within this team environment that is going to enable something that's even worse. They paint a picture of a man in power, a man abusing his power. Yeah, I mean, it it is obviously... One of the big elements of the story, right, is that players have this inherent fear of this is a person who controls their careers, right? Not just in terms of, okay, you could be traded, but the number of minutes that you get, right? I mean, players are, for for someone like Sinead, there's a story that she tells from 2011 where she turned down the U.S. women's national team because of the pressure that she felt from Paul Riley that she had betrayed the Philadelphia independence. And she is essentially turning down a roster spot on the world cup team. She would have been going to Germany. That spot eventually goes to Kelly O'Hara. And you think about the career that she has had. It's just, there is this element of both career, but also off the field. And and so many players said like, it felt normal to share this. It felt normal to share information about what they're eating, who they're seeing, what they're doing in their personal lives. Because for Paul Riley, they said everything relates to the performance of the team. Um, Meg, I'm not sure if, you, if you're aware um, of the context as well of, of when this story broke in the UK last week, the story, the, the story you wrote on the Thursday. In the UK, especially at the moment, um, there's been lots of stuff kind of going on in the public eye when it comes to uh, women's safety um, and uh, sexual abuse and, and lots of other things. So with all that combined, it, it's been you know quite heavy a couple of weeks. Um, can you tell us kind of about how it all un, un sort of unraveled and and what happened to Sinead and and that 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 part of her career? Yeah, I mean, both of them, you know, they they finally, the two players that I spoke to, and, and this is really their story, right? But they finally went on national television for the first time um, this morning. So basically, you know, five, five, six days after the story was released to say, Manishim essentially said, he took our careers, right? He, he took our careers. From early on, there was a possession, not just from Paul, but the team that I was playing for. They silenced me about multiple issues, my sexuality um, being the most important one. And yeah, I just was very, very uncomfortable the whole time. And every day I showed up to work, every day I practiced, every game I played, I didn't have confidence and I was scared. I was scared and the only thing that got me through was my teammates. Both of them really are never the same players after they play for Paul Riley. So for Sinead, she comes to to Portland, right? This is the third team that she's played with with Paul Riley. And 2014, she does not really have a great season. I think she, she was struggling a bit. But 2015, I mean, she has a really good season. She is determined to prove that she is still... <laughs> A good player right that she is still able to play the game and she has some very very good 
performances for that Portland team that is a very stacked team with a lot of international talent. And at the end of 2015, you know, they they try to, the two of, Monashim tries to report Paul Riley's behavior to Portland at the end of the year. And we can maybe get into that. But at the end of the year, uh, Sinead Fairley is traded to the Boston Breakers. And in that offseason, she is in a car accident and then she never plays soccer again. By the end of that, the 2016 year, she makes the call to just retire. So she really just has this exit from the sport that feels especially, I think, like a real, it, it's honestly, I think, a, a tragedy in and of itself to what happened to her career, that she was never really given that chance to play again and to see if she could actually find her own footing without Paul Riley. We, we will get into sort of that attempt to re- report him, but what are some of the claims that the players made about him to you about and also you know, you detail in the piece how they spoke to teammates about that one of those teammates being Alex Morgan, which for a lot of our listeners will be one of the most recognisable names in women's football. I mean, how, how did that, how did they try and document that and what was their experience? For Sinead, it goes back to her rookie season in 2011, again, in the league beforehand. And the the short version of this, since obviously the story is quite long and I don't want to um, basically reread the piece, but for Sinead, she has said that she felt Paul Riley sexually coerced her on multiple occasions. The first time is in 2011 after the championship match where the Philadelphia independents lose in a hotel room. It happens two more times. Once when she has gone back to university of Virginia to finish up her degree in the fall of 2011. And then again in the summer of 2012. And that second time she said involved a teammate in the same encounter with Paul Riley. That's, I think, the heaviest part of this story for sure. And their paths cross in Portland. 2014 is really just kind of essentially scene setting, really. Um, 2015 is when a lot of how their paths really intersect. When Monashim feels that Paul Riley starts to target her, he starts moving film sessions from the stadium to his apartment, and she feels like she can't say no. He takes her out to a dinner saying that he's going to talk about soccer or, you know, the next day's match. And instead he essentially is trying to take her on a date. That's, that's what she remembers, you know, in terms of, he says, order whatever you want, get some wine, drink some wine. Um, And then their stories really, really cross at this incident that they both described after a night where they went out drinking with the team and Paul Riley, and they all walk back to his apartment. There's an assistant coach with him. He uses the restroom. He leaves, and then it's just the three of them. And the two of them say that Paul Riley, you know, got up more drinks from the fridge and asked them to kiss before they left. And if they kissed each other, that they would not, the entire team would not have to run the suicide mile at the next training, which is this fitness drill that everyone completely hates. Um, they did so because they viewed it as the only way out of the apartment. And then the next training, multiple players said the team did not run the fitness drill. So after that incident, there's another uh, moment that Monashim describes where they're in a hotel on a road trip and Paul Riley says, come to my room. I want to watch game film with you. And he opened the door, she said, in just his underwear. 
and tried to get her to stay in the room. So as all of this is happening in 2015, she's also now finally, Monashim is hitting a breaking point and she said, she starts to tell people, she tells her family, she tells her partner at the time, and she also tells Sinead and Alex Morgan. And then Alex Morgan gets involved because Alex wants this reported. And they've at first tried to figure out, okay, is there a person, like, is there a way for us to report this where Monashim's name does not have to be attached? So that way there is no risk of retaliation. Because again, the fear here is she's going to report it, nothing's going to happen, and then she's going to be the one punished for reporting. They're unable to find that anonymous reporting mechanism. And so Mana sends a complaint via email to the team's owner, the team's general manager, the te- an HR person that they do manage to find, and Paul Riley himself. And from there, there is an investigation. Portland Thorns puts him on a suspension while they investigate. They don't communicate that to anyone. Um, they find that he has not conducted any unlawful behavior, but they found that he violated team policies and they decide not to renew his contract. And Paul Riley was rehired five months later by the Western New York Flash. What I'm struggling with is how someone, when these allegations have been made, can be allowed to go on and move on to new clubs and how this sort of thing just isn't properly regulated at all. This isn't an, a completely amateur league. You know, this is the, the highest league. Does It doesn't make sense to me that, that, that you know, it's, it's not regulated, that these things aren't being watched. How, how does that even happen? I think that's a great question because I think that there were people that likely saw that behavior. I think a lot of what we need to talk about within the sport is what behavior is normalized, because I think maybe some of the worst of this, right, wasn't done in in public sight, right? But do players feel comfortable if a coach wants to meet with them outside of a work function, right? Do players feel comfortable if, um, you know, the the way that a coach approaches speaking to them in a locker room you know, now now there is an anti-harassment policy that's in place at the NWL, and I think that some of this is spelled out in a much better way than what they would have had in 2015, 2016, when a lot, of, you know, when all of this is really going down. But there had to have been people that had some sort of sense of maybe this isn't right. And I, I mean, I can personally speak to I watched Paul Riley coach um, on away games when I was still covering the sport uh, in Boston, right? When when Portland Thorns would come through and I watched him berate a player during a match with just the worst language the entire game and everyone kind of looking at each other like, is this normal? But no one says anything because you've seen it with other coaches. You've seen that kind of verbal abuse through through games be normalized. And so why it might strike you at the moment you're not necessarily thinking about it because it seems within the bounds of what has been normalized of, well, I guess that's just how a coach speaks to a player who's not performing, which now you look at it as a rational human being and you're like, no, that was so clearly across a line. Yeah, but we're going to dig a bit more into kind of the wider context and impact this has had as well on the league and and women's football and women's sport in general. Um, after the break, you're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast and we've got loads more to discuss with, with Meg as well. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes 
and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobeUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Meg, since the story broke last week, it's had a massive impact on the league and, and the sport itself. So what are some of the things that have happened since? Yeah, I mean, we, we've actually been keeping this running post just because there is so much that has happened. Riley was terminated by the North Carolina Courage by the end of the day on Thursday. By the end of the day on Friday, NWL Commissioner Lisa Baird and General Counsel Lisa Levine were both gone from the league. Multiple investigations launched, NWL, Portland, U.S. Soccer, FIFA. I mean, kind of at every level now there is some form of investigation. We're not entirely sure how those investigations are going to overlap or interact with each other as well. Also some very big names. U.S. Soccer, I think, won the uh, biggest independent investigator name by hiring Sally Yates, who is a, a major political figure here in the U.S. to lead that investigation. But there's also just been this general outpouring of support for both Sinead and and Mana. Um, again, they went on television for the first time on Tuesday morning, and that was one of the things that they they spoke to the most in terms of seeing this huge swell of reaction. There have been rallies in multiple NWSL markets outside of stadiums, the largest one by far in Portland. Uh, in support, especially of the two of them. There's also been a lot of action from the NWSL Players Association with a list of demands. They did just announce on Tuesday morning that they will be playing games on Wednesday. I anticipate those are going to be a very interesting time um, in terms of both what we're going to get in the media portion of this, but likely also, you know, potential forms of protest from the players themselves on Wednesday. So it really has been just kind of this huge, huge wave of reaction and, and investigations. There's a new executive council now leading the NWL three women from the Board of Governors who are kind of in this temporary committee to run front office operations. And then they have launched a global search for a new commissioner as well. I always assumed that the women's game in America was way ahead of the women's game here, way ahead of the women's game worldwide. But but what this actually shows is that, that it hasn't been at all, has it? There's been failures all around. I think what it shows is that the system was built in a way, right, where the marketing, the business side of it was always going to take priority over the players themselves. Like yeah. the fundamental, the fundamentals of the league have always lagged behind. And we've seen this previously, right? Like this has been one of the big struggles of a story like this is like the NWL gets attention when things are going wrong, but not when things are going right. And there have been things that have gone right, right? Like, I mean, we're getting record crowds in a place like Portland, but also Portland has passed along a coach that has been abusive in some form. So 
the problem is though that we're only getting the spotlight on the league when they're playing on a field that's a tiny, tiny patch of grass on a, a baseball diamond or teams don't have showers, right? And it's good to highlight those problems because that's the way that they get fixed. But the sport also needs the sunlight when things are going well because the players are fundamentally the heart of the league. So it is kind of a big, you know, a big picture question of just, yes, the NWSL has gotten certain things right, but at the same time, they have kind of built this house without a foundation. And looking at the wider sort of systemic issues as well, um, it's not the first incident this season with allegations of abuse and bullying. Your colleague Steph Young has written a piece about kind of youth football and how it sort of that culture feeds into it as well. So it does feel like the work that is going to no- need to go in and all those investigations that you've mentioned, it's a it's a big big problem. Yeah, I mean it's it's not just. Paul Riley, right? This is not just one bad actor within the system. It is, uh, you know, Sinead uses this term that that ends the story from Thursday, institutional betrayal. There is this systemic problem that the NWSL has, but it is not also just the NWSL. And I think we've seen that even from, you know, Allie Raceman, who is a USA gymnastics athlete, starting to weigh in and saying like, This is what happened. This is the same fundamental kind of structure of problem that happened in gymnastics. It is just, it's a power. It's a power issue. And youth soccer, I mean, we, I don't think we have even scratched the surface in terms of what's happening in youth soccer. I mean, you do any sort of search for news out of youth soccer and there are abusive coaches everywhere, right? Because, I mean, you think about, you know, to to your question, Dan, of like, how is there not oversight over this, right? Like you assume that there's going to be oversight at the professional level where some of the stuff would get reported and, and cut out. But think about the real lack of oversight over the youth system and what could actually be mm-hmm. happening there. I, there's there's a lot more storytelling there that I think is going to be very, very troubling. Yeah, and we, we've had, you know, over the last few years, especially a real sort of, uh, reckoning within youth men's football with with sexual abuse that's happened for decades and it's been really difficult for so many survivors and and we're only really sort of scratching the surface with that. But one of the interesting elements of your piece, I think as well, and this is especially when it comes to women's sport and women's football, is this desperation for it to be a success, like you said, the marketing, everything, this desperation for it to be a success, which it leads to this lack of transparency, which almost feels like a cover-up because no one wants to see the league fail. No one wants to see whatever sport it might be fail. Um, do you think this could help do away with that kind of culture of having to have success? I, I think we've already seen this huge reaction from players, right? Saying, I mean, the, the first NWSL Players Association statement essentially said like, the NWSL has failed us. We're taking our power back, right? Like, There is, the patience I think is gone in terms of waiting for structures to be on players' levels. But I think, you know, it's not even just this fear of the entire thing could go away, right? There's also this pressure for them to smile their way through being underpaid and all of the other, you know, lack of facilities and and everything else, right? So 
they there has been this huge pressure of we have to keep this thing alive because this is our livelihood, <laughs> right? But now I think that there is this understanding of the way that it's working right now is actively causing harm. Like we we have to really just pull this thing apart, figure out what has to stay, what has to go in order to build. And, you know, I know that there's already been a lot of big articles and takes from people who don't really cover the league on a on a huge regular basis about like, oh, is the NWSL going to survive? And like, I think that's the wrong question because I don't think that the question should, I don't think anyone should care if the NWSL as like a name or a brand survives. That's not the question. The question is, is if professional women's soccer is going to survive. And that is the answer where I think, yes, absolutely. Because I think that there is the players have understood their collective power. Do do any of them care if the NWSL name or brand survives? Not really. I don't think so. The important part is that they have a place to play and they have a place to play that is safe. Again, I find that the mantra of like being a good teammate, not not wanting to let your teammates down when essentially that that's not what they're doing at all, but they're then made to feel that if they don't do certain things, that's what they're going to be doing, and I, I just can't. I mean, I'm I'm embarrassed to be a man in some ways doing doing this podcast, but I can't believe that people get put in that position. Human beings can put other human beings in that position. I think about the story that Sinead fairly told me about. It's the summer of 2012, right? Um, two times have have already happened, and there's a week off that summer. It's it's probably during the Olympics, right? Like that. It's kind of the stopgap. It's not a real professional league. It's a stopgap thing between WPS and NWSL. And um, yeah, she says, you know, we had a week off and I came back and I was sitting in my car and, and she said that was the first panic attack that she ever had and that she could not get out of the car. She could not show up to training, right? And her first thought is I'm letting my teammates down. Not about herself, but just that if I don't if I don't get out of this car, if I don't go to that practice, they're gonna think I'm a bad teammate, that I don't care about them. And she's holding on to this secret for a year at this point, right? Like this this thing is kind of eating her alive. And the first thought is they're gonna think I'm a bad teammate. And that, yeah, to your like that is a pressure that no one should have to go through. I think um you know, it was obviously really, really difficult for, for lots of people to read the piece and and lots of people to listen to this podcast as well. And, you know, I was texting one of our athletic colleagues today and, and she was saying, you know, I hope the podcast goes well because it's, it's a really difficult thing to talk about. And I was saying, you know, last week on Thursday, with all the context I mentioned of everything that's happened in the UK, it was really difficult. But actually this week, the players' reactions, people like Megan Rapino, Alex Morgan, that our listeners will know, um, and the empowerment that I think has actually come as a result of that. Um, and, you know, what... Um, Sinead mentioned today on that Good Morning America interview about turning a moment into a movement. I think it does feel really empowering to feel like there's going to be some really positive change across the whole of women's football, across potentially the whole of women's sport as a result of this and as a result of, you know, your journalism as well, Meg, not to, you know, not to make you blush on the podcast, but um, it does feel like there could be some positive outcome and, and a real empowerment as a result of such a horrible thing. 
Yeah, when when Mana spoke about that moment into a movement thing, I was actually really reminded, and this is a very specific reference, but there was a sermon that I saw here in New York City where there was a, a woman who spoke about monument thinking versus movement thinking. And that's actually where my brain immediately went because she describes like monument thinking is, you know, something that's that's like just firmly stuck to the ground. Like if an earthquake comes, it's going to crumble, right? But a movement can can survive. And I think framing the NWSL, the league, the institution as a monument here, that it, it could very well crumble, right? Through, But there is a movement that does have the potential to happen and go much, much further than the NWSL that could help women's soccer as a sport and, and other sports as well. That's kind of the bigger framing here of, again, like what what needs to stay, what needs to go, who's being protected, who's benefiting, right? I mean, this is the other part of this too, is that it is largely male ownership that has built the structure of this league, but has also benefited from the players, right? And has generally treated them as um, chips that they can move from one team to another. And to be fair, a lot of them are putting a lot of money into this, right? Like, I don't know, probably no one's making a huge amount of money off of this, but there is the potential to make money off of this. We're starting to see those sponsorships come in, right? That's why Commissioner Lisa Baird was hired, was to make money for this league, whether it was through Budweiser or, you know, any other number of sponsors coming in, new television deals, right? Like that's what we've seen in the WSL, that kind of game-changing television money coming in. And now I think one of the big things for, this was already a very important story in the NWSL, but now even more crucial is the negotiation for a collective bargaining agreement between the players and the league. And it's going to be very interesting to see what direction that takes now, considering basically everything that has happened over the past couple of months. Yeah, Meg, thank you so much for your time um, and, and yeah, chatting to us because I know you're, you're a busy woman at the moment. Um, and <laughs> if anyone hasn't read the piece, please do. Um, it's, you know, it's such a such a powerful message. And yeah, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Yeah, thanks ever so much to Meg for joining us and, and talking through her pace, an, an exceptional pace, a really powerful pace and a really, really important pace. 
still time before we go to point you in the direction of a couple of other things going on on the athletic at the moment flo is there anything in particular that you've been enjoying oh uh, well yeah october is um obviously black history month and the athletic and be doing some pieces throughout the month um and there is a new one out uh, on troy deeney obviously a watford legend and adam leventhal the watford correspondent for the athletic has done a, a really good sit down with him about he's obviously now at, at birmingham city but it's talking about his new book that's just come out uh, called redemption my story and um, we've actually got a, a bit of a clip as well uh, from troy's interview with adam and he's he talked about the impact of england's euro 2020 penalty shootout defeat and uh, his work continuing to fight against discrimination in football and in society as well. I'm so glad it happened to Rashford, Saka, Sancho and Sterling on that stage when the whole nation had got behind everyone going, yes, we're all together, we're going to win the Euros because you called out their hypocrisy from the top. Because if yeah. you remember two and a half weeks before, Boris Johnson, Peter Patel, Dominic Raab, Hancock, it's all the political stuff that has nothing to do with football. I wouldn't even get on my knee to ask my missus to marry me. Remember, it was all a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then once the country had got behind it and the PR political train had got behind it, it was now, three weeks later, it's disgusting what's happening. Because it fit their, it fitted their agenda. But yeah. this is where you can call out the nonsense because you can pull up facts and Tyrone Mings did it absolutely spot on. Yeah. And that's the struggle that we have now within this this conversation and debate about race and about discrimination is because people are going, well, what about that white lady that died? Her life matters. Of course it did. But what we are saying is that if you look up mainstream media, if that young white lady who's recently just, uh, I think it was today, wasn't it? The, the court, because, the, yeah. the man got sent to jail and all of that. That level of um, media attention doesn't get given when it's the young black girl that gets raped or the young Asian girl that gets raped. Now, that is not saying that the people who write the stories are racist. We're just saying that the scale is slightly tipped. Could we work together to level it out? Yeah. You're asking for equality. You're not asking for more. You're not asking for less. You're asking for equality. And second of all, when people, and there will be people that listen to this and go in the comments and do the normal nonsense and try and discredit it, but how about this? When Matt Hancock called on footballers to give more in the NHS, remember that? And I think it was close to 12 million quid, I think all footballers donated yeah. through all of us. It was something like, I can't remember what Jordan yeah. said the actual number was. It was round about that, 12 million pounds, a lot of money. I don't remember one person saying politics shouldn't be football because that's a politician calling out footballers yeah. for a political gain and a political agenda. But you take a knee and now politics shouldn't be in football. Uh, it must be so frustrating as well when you're trying to fight for what you believe in and you just get pushed back and knocked down left, right and centre. Um, and, you know, what you said about politicians in the in the summer when it came to the Euros and the hypocrisy there and also, you know, the hypocrisy of people trying to keep politics out of football or whatever, or whatever they try and say with that statement is just existing in this world at the moment is fairly political. So it's too late. It's too late. Like it's all wrapped up here. Um, and, you know, football is a massive part of society, has a huge influence on all of us. 
And if you can't respect that and realise that, then, you know, you just don't understand the world. And, I, you know, some of that is deliberate misunderstanding because people, you know, don't want to have to acknowledge that. Uh, and some of it is is very deliberate, very strategic and very political in its own right. But, you know, it's great to have people like Troy Deeney and others. And, you know, you mentioned Jordan Henderson in that clip as well, who, who are fighting for equality and, and standing up for what they believe in because... I think that's brilliant that they've realised and and not realised because that's unfair, but, you know, they don't have to do this. They don't have to do this. They can mm. take their paycheck and play football and, you know, live a, a great life, but they've decided that they want to do this. Um, and, you know, a lot of them are, are potentially risking losing a lot because of it. And I have massive respect for them to, to, for doing that. Troy Daney, one of the most interesting and best talkers in football, and that article is out now if you fancy going and giving it a read. Go to theathletic.com and you'll be able to read other articles as well, celebrating Black History Month. And join us next week on this podcast because we'll be highlighting another important story from this collection. And remember, if you're not subscribed to The Athletic at the moment, you can do so for just £3.33 a month. Just head to theathletic.com slash football pod and you'll be able to take advantage of that offer. That does us for today. Thanks, Flo, ever so much for joining me. And a big thanks to Meg as well, because it was so, so good to talk through that, that important topic with her. Get involved in the comments section. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And wherever you get your podcast, if you are enjoying the show, then please leave us a review as well. This has been the Athletic Football Podcast, and we hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Mark Chapman and Matt Slater will take over from Flo and myself. Have a great day. The Athletic. <laughs>